Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the June edition of Prospect is wending its way across a nation on the edge of yet again voting, we ponder what it takes these days to make a winning political sale. Is it about something old or something new? Well, France has just elected a completely new and unknown quantity in 39-year-old Emmanuel Macron. So we'll look at this and ask whether part of Theresa May's appeal could also be that there's still a fair bit that we don't know about her. On the other hand, we sure as hell know her party. The Tories are Europe's oldest and most successful political tribe. And we'll discuss how they've chopped, changed and come out winning over the course of 300 years. Somebody once described the Tory party as an alliance of the city and the mob. Well, the mob have taken over. So what do voters want? There are as many answers to that as there are political views. But we promise we can at least offer a trio of journalists with the brio to impose some strength and stability on the debate. In the studio with me, we have a columnist who takes equal delight in swiping at the right and the far left, Nick Cohen. Then down the line from France, we're joined by Christine Ocrant, who used to edit L'Express, as well as the historian and journalist Geoffrey Wheatcroft. So first to France. Christine, you profiled Emmanuel Macron for Prospect a couple of years ago, when I think it's fair to say nobody in Britain knew who he was. So if anyone's got a measure of the young man who's suddenly in the world spotlight, then I guess it's you. And um, what are we to make of him? Well, first of all, it should be Prospect, because by asking me to do a profile of Macron two years ago, that was quite uh, insightful. Uh, more seriously, I think uh, Macron is a... Is a obviously uh, a fascinating phenomenon, if only because he he corresponds to the sort of democratic fatigue, which in France, at least, had led to uh, the exhaustion of the two mainstream parties which uh, have been ruling this country for 50 years, uh, namely uh, the socialists and the conservatives. They couldn't even manage to have a, a candidate uh, for the second round of our election. And so Macron has not only been extremely, how could I put it, visionary as far as his own ambition goes, but he's also been extremely lucky. But of course, as we all know, luck is, a, is also part of political talent. But uh, the way this presidential campaign in France has unfolded was really totally unpredictable. 
uh, even six months ago. So he's been lucky. And as you say, he offers great novelty in form of this new party that's replacing the old and, and, and seems to have knocked both the Gaulists and the socialists out of the way. But when it comes to policy, is he so new? Because if you're looking at this from Britain or perhaps the United States, his ideas might sound like reheated 1990s stuff of the sort we might associate with Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. Yes, indeed. But by French standards, it's extremely audacious. The French political elites have been stuck on the left by a sort of, uh, you know, old Marxist, not even post-Marxist, but an old Marxist mental hardware. It's interesting you, you, you use the word gaullist for the conservatives. Well, they've been stuck also in the sort of, uh, you know, the shadow of Charles de Gaulle, who would probably not recognize uh, many of those conservatives today because they differ uh, from one another so much and, and there are so many divisions uh, inside the, the conservative uh, Party. So what seems to you like, uh, you know, old stuff? Again, by French standards, it's, it is so audacious that Macron will indeed have a very hard time uh, trying to, to impose what seems to be common sense uh, policies to other Western democracies. Nick, you can hear, I think, quite a lot of right-wing Labour people looking at this and saying... Could this happen here? Indeed, will it happen here that someone will emerge as a new centrist force if Corbyn goes down to a heavy defeat? I think it's not so much if Corbyn goes down to a heavy defeat. It's if Corbyn doesn't resign, if Corbyn doesn't take responsibility. And uh, looking at the track record of him and his kind, taking responsibility is not something they're good at. They'll blame the media, they'll blame... Blairite MPs, they'll blame the, the wilder ones, will blame the intelligence service, they'll blame everyone, the BBC, political editor of the BBC, anyone and everyone will be blamed except them. What I am assured is going to happen after the election is that there will be a slight pause. So, as people say in the language of the time, Corbyn can own the defeat, and then Yvette Cooper and Chuck Romana, who from different parts of the Labour Party, one more from Brownite, one more Blairite, will stand. Corbyn will either run again. What he won't have, it seems certain, unless Labour collapsed to about 100 seats, which is unlikely, if still, you know, these days, slightly possible to imagine. Uh, what, what there won't be is enough MPs to put an alternative left-wing candidate in, so it'd have to be Corbyn again. If he wins again, then people are talking about a new party. Simply because I just don't think... I think public pressure would demand... I just simply can't see you know, liberal England, progressive England, call it what you will, hanging around for 20 years, with 20 years of Conservative government, just waiting for the Labour Party to but, get its act together. But c- can you see how it would work? I mean, obviously, with in France, you had the case of a presidency. Yes, that's, so that's, you put that's a star a forward and then yeah, that's you're in thing. business. It's, yes, it is very different. The British system is, is very stable in a way and very, very hard to change. There's no proportional representation, obviously. But yes, because it's not presidential, you can't have a Macron. Equally, you couldn't have a Trump in Britain. You know, Trump was essentially a non-party candidate. He wasn't from the Republican Party. Here you have to serve in your party, work your way up in your party, and then, then you can't just run as, a, as an independent, as, Ma- as Macron did. So that's why, I mean, Lord knows it would be a mess, and Lord knows there'll be huge problems to overcome, and the precedents for new parties aren't 
great in Britain, but I think if people see the far left in control of the Labour Party unmovable and crucially having no programme to turn around for the next election and the Tories essentially being gifted with an opposition they might have sat there and designed themselves... Then, then, then naturally, because people are in public life to change the country, they're, mm. not, they're not going to stay in an impossible situation for the next five or ten years. Geoffrey, um, uh, we shouldn't forget that Marine Le Pen did get a third of the vote, which in a way was quite remarkable. But nonetheless, after Corbyn and then after Trump, this was a clear liberal win. Do you think it can last in France? Well, the, the circumstances of the elections in the three different countries in in France, in Great Britain, and in the United States are, of course, different. But there are curious similarities. There is even a similarity. I don't, I don't say this to upset Christine, but there is a similarity between Macron and Trump in the sense that they were both complete political outsiders and they both routed the establishment. I mean, Trump routed the, the, the Republican establishment seized the nomination of his party, and then he, in effect, routed the Democratic establishment as well, who had rather inertly allowed uh, Hillary Clinton to be imposed on them as a frankly very weak and inadequate candidate. And um, I'm sure the Democrats would have beaten Trump with a stronger candidate. Um, uh, Macron's uh, victory is obviously, has certain factors, as, as Christine has written, that the large numbers of people. Well, the difference between America and France is that in, in America, many people who didn't at all, I happen to know this, many people who didn't at all admire or like Hillary Clinton felt obliged to vote, to vote for her uh, in order to keep out Trump, but, but unsuccessfully as it proved. Whereas in France, many people who wouldn't have thought of voting for Macron, I think, voted for him in order to keep out Le Pen. Is that, would you say, Christine, that's fair? Yes, indeed, very much so. I fully subscribe to your analysis, including the comparison uh, between Trump and Macron, although Macron would probably sort of jump on his chair. <laughs> yeah, but, yes. uh, but this being said, uh, I think there's always a tendency to understate the importance of the voting system. Yes. The fact that we in France... And indeed, it's not the case in Britain and obviously not the case in the U.S. We have these two round majority votes, which means that traditionally, uh, ever since uh, the Fifth Republic was created in 58, the idea is the first round you, you select, you choose. The second round, you vote against uh, the person you don't want. Yes. Now, it, it, it turns out that in most democracies, at least on the continent in Europe, now people tend to vote against at the first round and the, first, and the second round, which is pretty mm. much what happened in France this time around. Mm. And of course, uh, in the US, it's, it's, it's entirely different. I think Trump wouldn't have made it. Uh, in, in any other system but a sort of, you know, obsolete end of the 18th century. Yes, that is quite that is quite true, of course. You've got a minority in the, in the popular vote. And what we have, the three pieces we've written and have in common, I was thinking, reading them, is that we're talking about the collapse or even implosion of traditional political systems. I mean, as, you, as Christine knows, the, the French Socialist Party, which played a very important part in French political history right through the 20th century, 
from Leon Blum to Mitterrand, um, is, is now a shell. It is hard to see where it goes from here. Um, well, actually, as, as Manuel Valls, the, 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 last, I mean, the, the last socialist prime minister, said two days ago, he said, Blanc, he wants, the socialist he wants... party is dead. Yes, and he wants to join. He wants to join President Macron. Well, let's move on to because you're talking about the collapse of parties, and that's obviously very pertinent. But the the core of what you've written for us uh, isn't about the groundbreaking new party. It's about the hardy perennial party of our own isles, really, isn't it? The Tories have looked dead often in the past, and they look like they could be set into a terminal spin by the referendum last year. But instead, they've somehow emerged from it, looking breathtakingly. Um, strong, and when you take the very long view, you say that there's there's nothing very unusual in that. They keep bouncing back. Well, that is true. It's a freak of political nature, the Tory party. And as I say, we had a party in this country, in England, in the reign of King Charles II in the 17th century, called the Tories. And in the 21st century, under Queen Elizabeth II, we have a party called the Tories. One doesn't want to exaggerate the continuity or apostolic succession from the, the anti-exclusionists of 1689 until uh, to, 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 to Theresa May's Tories today. But, I mean, the fact is that they have, one way or another, maintained some sort of traditional continuity all this way through. But they've done it by continually reinventing themselves and by continually uh, adopting their opponents' policies in a cynical fashion and by doing about turns um, of the most abrupt kind. And so you talk in the article, you say, you know, they used to be for free trade, then they were for protection, they used to be for peace, then they were for war, they used to be for empire, and then they decolonised. And so it goes on. And when you put it in that perspective, when you see Theresa May was um, one of the Remainers last year and is now the Queen of Brexit, isn't that just one more example of the flexibility that in some ways I think you admire. Well, I admire it up to a point. I mean, when, when flexibility, when does it become completely unprincipled cynicism is the question, you know. Does the Tory party have any purpose at all except simply to perpetuate itself over and over again? It is extraordinary what's happened to it because, of course, the last reinvention or total about turn has been from... A strongly pro-European party in the 1970s to the, the party of Brexit today. And, and as you know, that there was, in the last House of Commons, there was at the time of the referendum last year, there was a, an overwhelming majority of MPs in favour of remaining in the EU, which incidentally, when we hear about the will of the people, it demonstrates the complete incompatibility of plebiscitary democracy and parliamentary government. And the majority of Tory MPs were Remainers, including Mrs May. They wouldn't have known it from her, as I say, from her Trappist silence during the referendum. But, but they've now, and as Nick said, they've now become the Conservative and UKIP party. I'm afraid that is the case. But Nick, 1906, 1945, 1997, they do get knocked down from time to time. But boy, do they get back up again, don't they? Uh, yes, I mean, for, for, uh, 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 partly for the reasons Geoffrey says as they are they are chameleons you know they will be flexible be cynical but any political party and Labour Party doesn't have this sense saying however much we have to change we want to be in control of the change so the fact as as Jeffrey says they're always standing on their heads or um or or saying one thing one day another the next 
matters less, can matter less, as long as they have control. So radical change is kept under their control and kept within limits, which they've, which they've been very successful at doing. And now, well, I mean, look, as, as I think Jeffrey said earlier, the only reason we're having this election is the simultaneous collapse of the Labour Party and UKIP, which any prime minister seeing leads of 20% in the opinion polls would have to be more saintly than this Vickersdorf's to say, I'm not going to go to the country. But you're seeing a block emerge in Britain of united right, mm. and it hasn't really been united since the Tory civil war on Europe began, I guess, with Margaret Thatcher's Bruce speech, that's when it really got going. So we're going back a generation of listeners to this programme who weren't even born then, you know. I mean, that seems to be over. Although, I mean, one thing I'm very wary of, and perhaps this is just me fantasising, I just don't see how the Tory party of business and the Tory party of nationalist Little England can live together. Mm. She could get a huge majority at this election. It could be, you know, as big as manufacturers in, in 1983. But I just don't see how they sit together. Business, if you like, the productive part of the economy are desperate to avoid a hard Brexit. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you read the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph, unfortunately the Daily Telegraph is now just like the Daily Mail. I can't really see the difference between the except the fewer celebrities. You know, they, they, they seem to be absolutely ultra anti-European. Mm. And one wonders how they're going to live together after that. But that said, you know, the only people I hear, the only liberal conservatives I hear raising doubts are a dwindling band of liberal conservative journalists. I don't... You don't see it in politics. You don't, mm. you don't see struggles in cabinets. You just see uh, us all ploughing on. So maybe I'm just uh, fantasising about some, some Tory split in 2018. I mean, there's a logic, Geoffrey, isn't there, to what Nick's saying there, whether this tribe um, comes back with a big majority, whether it will be able to hang together, because some people are very, very concerned about business and trade and all of that, and other people are just bothered about sovereignty and getting away from Europe. I was going to say that... Uh, Somebody once described the Tory party long ago, earlier in the last century, as an alliance of the city and the mob. Well, the mob have taken over and it's very, and the city of London are very discomforted by this. They didn't want Brexit. I mean, they are going to see, every day you open a newspaper, you read another story about another merchant bank or hedge fund preparing to leave London. I mean, about which I may say I have mixed feelings (laughs) because our bloated financial sector has been something of a problem as well as a a, a source of great revenue to the Treasury. And the the Tory party, I think we've dealt with the Tory party in this endless capacity for reinvention. As far as Labour's concerned, and I would think this is maybe true, but Christine will tell me, in France, if you have complete dominance in, in England, the Conservatives, as will certainly happen, they are going to win a huge majority, I think. And the Labour Party may, it is possible the Labour Party will be extinguished and will disappear as the, the Whigs or the Liberals disappeared before. But, but since nature, political nature, pours a vacuum, a new radical party will have to emerge. And I would have thought in France that it is possible that the old Socialist Party is now finished and some new radical party will emerge there. Is that too fanciful, Christine? No, I think it's you're absolutely right and it's very much the dream of Jean-Luc Mélenchon uh, who sees himself as the new prophet of something rather hazy combining Fidel Castro, Chavez, a sort of Bolivian alliance of sorts, 
uh, Leon Trotsky, if not Stalin, but he's convinced that he's really on a on a crusade, and uh, he he did well, 19.3% of the vote on the first round, so I guess yeah. I'm being too ironical. But he's certainly convinced that with the support of whatever's left of the French Communist Party, he would be the new incarnation of a new left. That's sort of what's happened to the Labour Party in Britain with Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it is, in that sense, at least the people in control of the Labour Party are very similar to what's happened in France. Going back to what you and Geoffrey were saying earlier, and about as far away as you can get from the politics of the Second International which the French Socialist Party and the British Labour Party used to believe in. I find them ideologically extremely hypocritical, very, very odd. They're not anti-fascist in the sense that they will automatically stand up against extreme reactionary movements, whether it be uh, theocracy in Iran or the kleptocracy in Russia. They're very, very strange. Um, but you know, th- th- that is, in my neck of the woods, political neck of the woods, in Britain, that is, or has been, perhaps Corbyn is, the disaster of Corbyn is waking some people up, sort of the dominant intellectual movement. You're not meant to start, start saying, well, hold on a second, what's the leader of the Labour Party, of all parties, doing working for the propaganda channel of a country that oppresses women and kills homosexuals in the Middle East? You're not meant to say that. You, they don't think like that. They don't automatically think, and if you like broadly, the terms of the Second International. Well, that's just wrong. We We are socialists or democratic socialists or social democrats, these people are not our friends. The people they oppress are our friends and comrades. Whatever happens to the Labour Party in Britain, I think a movement like Mélenchon's will survive here and perhaps even prosper. So, Christine, we've been going around the houses in terms of explanations for Tory dominance, looking at Labour's chaos and the adaptability of the Conservative Party, but there might be a simpler explanation, which is maybe England is just basically a conservative country now when you compare it with france and look at france is that how it looks to you i mean what strikes me about britain is that it's still very class conscious and indeed it was fascinating to me seeing how theresa may got rid of the eton oxford cambridge uh, clique represented by Cameron and his friends, uh, which is exactly what which is exactly what Margaret Thatcher did to the Tory Party in the early eighties. She had her purge of the upper class old guard in the party, and that we don't have we don't have that in France. But we have another paradox that the French have a president who has a, a lot more powers by the way, than the German chancellor, for instance. But but they want the president to have a sort of monarchical style. Uh, There's a longing for that as well, which is something that Macron has very well understood, having watched François Hollande uh, closely uh, for four years. And uh, he said, Macron said something interesting uh, about the French. He said, the French want their president to be Jupiterian, to be more like Jupiter or Zeus, if you yes. prefer, uh, than, uh, you know, the normal guy uh, whom uh, Hollande pretended to be. <laughs> I tell you one thing, Christine, it seems to me, and it has slowly dawned on me, that the, the political problem in France is partly that the Fifth Republic was designed by and for one man. It was specifically designed for Charles de Gaulle. 
and it has slowly come unstuck institutionally ever since De Gaulle. Is that plausible? I mean, there's no one who has quite fitted the role since him. Well, true, but don't forget that even De Gaulle got kicked out. Uh, well, of course. After... Well, that, that was yeah, indeed, indeed so, indeed. Yes, that's true, but Mitterrand was solemn enough and mysterious enough and mischievous. Yes, that's yes, yes, of course he would, indeed, indeed, yes, indeed. To, to... But I, I, I just, I felt some sympathy with Mélenchon when he said it's time to move on from the Fifth Republic and, and, and reinvent the Republic, but we'll see. Nick and Jeffrey, in your different ways, you both issued Theresa May with a bit of a warning. It's um, We're on the cusp of what could be the Conservatives' greatest modern triumph. And yet, Nick, you describe uh, Theresa May as a, as, as a prisoner of the right. And Jeffrey, you say, even though she's possibly about to get this huge majority, you think she won't be able to to stop when it comes to Europe. Jeffrey, why don't you go first? Why is it, if she's about to get this majority, let's just imagine for the sake of argument that she does and it's crushing, why won't she be free to do what she wants? Well, Tony Blair had an enormous parliamentary majority in 1997 and he was very much not free to do everything he wanted to do, mercifully in the case of the single currency, which he wanted to join. And he was he, he was prevented from joining it. And today, absolutely, everyone agrees that that, that, that one good thing <clears throat> without... A, question that the, the Labour government did was not joining the single currency, which would have been a calamity for us. Um, she, huge majorities do not necessarily, parliamentary majorities, give the Prime Minister a free hand. They may paradoxically be trapped by the size of their own majority. And in her case, the problem facing her is that if Brexit turns into a complete and utter car crash, which I think is more than likely, the size of a an increasingly right-wing majority behind her isn't going to be any help to her. And Nick, finally, is that how you see it as well? Yes. I said she was a prisoner of the right. She's a willing prisoner of the right. Mm. I mean, she's locked herself up and thrown away the key. But if Brexit is a car crash, as Geoffrey says, what on earth are they going to do? Theresa May has now tied herself to the entire, all the, if I'm allowed to say them, outright lies of the Leave campaign. There'll be 350 million a week for the NHS, the biggest straight lie since Suez, I think, in British politics. And what they're, they're not going to admit we lied to the public, we misled the public. They're going to say we, we've, uh, they're going to get ever more anti-European, they're going to blame Europe, they're going to increasingly blame people who keep saying we should have stayed, you were wrong, you know, we get this all the time now, you must believe with us, otherwise you're enemies of the people, to, co- to coin a phrase. There will be endless stab-in-the-back theories about why this hasn't worked and a whiff of Weimar about the place. At the simplest level, the sheer complexity of this, the absolutely vast complexity. Whitehall, we're sitting not far from Whitehall. Every government department Mm. is overwhelmed by this. That is going to limit what she can do. She can win every seat in Parliament, but still her government is going to be overwhelmed by this and, and Brexit will just fill up all her time. So... Do, doing what she wants, she, she's going to have to do what she said she didn't want to do and uh, when she voted to keep us in the European Union. 
Well, thank you very much indeed. That is all we've got time for. Uh, so special thanks to Nick Cohen, Christine Ockrant and Geoffrey Wheatcroft. The June edition of Prospect Magazine features all their essays and much more beside, including Bonnie Greer on why the decline of American liberalism is a passing illusion and Gillian Beer on the return of Arundhati Roy. You can pick it up in the shops from the 18th of May, but even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion please do visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye and thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.